whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. You as the operator, you as the founder have to fall in love with the idea or the problem that you're trying to solve. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi everyone. And welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. We have Lucy DeLand, who is one of the founding partners at Inspired Capital, but also one of the founding team members at Paperless Post, which is this awesome, awesome, awesome company that I have known about and used for many, many, many years. And uh, she was at the last decade was their chief operating officer. And I'm sure had tons and tons of learnings. (laughs) You guys were disrupting in so many amazing ways. And she built and led the finance, customer insights and operations, strategic planning and marketing and driving the company's growth to a network of 100 million amazing on a lot of fronts. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, super, super excited. And then I also 
am really excited to hear because I think it's something that so many people sort of think about in their next career move is, you know, what do you do next after you've done lots of great founding and and had really great roles as you did. So I'm super excited to talk about Inspired Capital as well. And uh, yeah, so let's get started. But welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. Again, I'm very excited to be here. What was sort of the backstory? I mean, you you graduated from Harvard. You like tell me a little bit about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually went right into uh, VC and the investment side from undergrad, and really thought that I was um, bypassing a step. You know, going through the finance, I you know, investment banking step, and I just got lucky and was uh, bolted right into venture capital. Uh, I always loved technology innovation the excitement of growth. And so was thrown into the deep end there and actually found when I was there that what I really coveted and who I wanted to be when I grew up were the management teams that were sitting across the table from me. Interesting. And that their job seemed so exciting and, you know, willing these companies into existence, growing them to employ hundreds of employees, building, you know, products that hadn't existed before. Um, that seemed like a really cool job to have. And, Equal and opposite, I felt like even if I was going to sit back in the investor seat, that that experience would be invaluable. That if I was going to advise companies, work with entrepreneurs, uh, that having been in their seat before was, at least for me, going to be a really crucial step for building up the skill set I wanted to have uh, to be able to be back on that side of the table. But that was really not what I was thinking about at that time. I was really thinking, how do I get into that founder seat? So over a couple of years of evaluating hundreds of businesses, started speaking to a couple of friends uh, about the concept they were uh, throwing around, which was sort of the transformation and digitization of the stationary world and bringing on this, the sort of what we saw as the last, the last communication that had not yet found its way into a digital format. And so in the fall of 2008, took the leap and we started raising our seed round uh, as the world absolutely crumbled around us. I was going to say, <laughs> such a great time. Good times, yeah. right? <laughs> we uh, we incorporated the company on the day that Lehman collapsed, which was definitely not on purpose. In New York City, <laughs> too. In New York City, yes. Oh, just, uh, you know, 40 blocks south of where we were. <laughs> oh my gosh. Crazy, mm-hmm. crazy. And mm-hmm. so what were you... Like, what did you think that day? Do you remember? Were you just, oh my gosh, what did I just do? Well, actually, as I was considering jumping into this world and, you know, in New York, 2008, finance was, had been flying high up mm-hmm. until that point. Entrepreneurship really had not taken hold in this city quite yet. And so everyone sort of thought I was a little bit insane for leaving this cushy, exciting job for this sort of unknown path. And, you know, you tell someone you work at Paperless Post in 2008, everyone gives you a blank stare. I call them the doubters, right? They're they're all thinking you're a little crazy. You're all, yeah. Yeah. You'd be fun to get a glass of wine with still, but they think you're sort of nuts, right? (laughs) Yeah. And maybe you're even more fun to get a glass of wine with because you are that nuts. Yeah, and then as uh, really as this landscape started to to shift so dramatically underneath all of our feet in New York, it it was kind of reassuring. I was like, okay, so nobody has higher ground. We're all 
we're all here trying to make it work. You know, I have my friends from Lehman who are getting laid off. I've got uh, friends at other banks that are freaked out. And I was like, well, jump into this scary world with me then. Uh, it, this is the moment and time. Like, wh- When would be a better time to take a huge risk when the safe places are disappearing? Yeah, there really are no safe places. So yeah. my, my father actually was, a, I call him a frustrated entrepreneur within a large <laughs> company growing up. And uh, I watched him just really think about, gosh, if I left, you know, back in his day, it was like you had one job, you were a maybe two, right? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine the stress thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart. Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week, too like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices, snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part, each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. That's code GOLDEN50 at factormeals.com slash GOLDEN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is 
super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So picking your your like only job at age 21. I talk to my kids about this all the time. That, that, yeah. Like you think you got stress? Like imagine, <laughs> you know, whatever, 60 this years ago when you were trying mm-hmm. to make a decision. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot, right? I mean, that was just, I, it's crazy. Yeah. But then he was actually laid off after he had developed a product, which is still alive today, called Healthy Choice. And uh, he was laid off by uh, his company. He had been through an acquisition. Mm-hmm. Initially, Healthy Choice was in a company called Armor Food Company, and they were acquired by ConAgra. And he was laid off for not having an MBA. It was for just not checking who, all the... Yeah, for not checking. Mm-hmm. And never in a million years that, yeah. I mean... That, did he think that? And again, he mm-hmm. really believed that there was job security. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just, I bring that up because I think it's it's something that more and more people are seeing that it's, you got to go do what you love and go jump into something that you're really learning and all of those and things. swing for it. Yeah. Right. Because safety is a, uh, can be an illusion. It's a total illusion. So mm-hmm. how did you come up with the idea? So my co-founder, James Hirschfeld, came up with it on his 21st birthday Mm -hmm. as he was uh, throwing sort of the first formal, you know, I'm inviting people to a party that he'd ever had uh, and kind of got to the end of the process and found that there was no way that really made sense, he thought, for, you know, this was probably back in 2000, uh, early 2008, late 2007, that made sense for today. And he is someone who is high design. He, but he was also a 21-year-old man who was not going to go invest in paper. He didn't know his friend's addresses. And so it really started as a very micro use case. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looked out and said, I think that if I, as a you know, guy trying to invite 100 college kids to a party, feel this need, then I believe that there is a whole host of people who are organizing much more important events who have embraced the internet that would be really happy to still have. And what we always sort of prioritized was design and Mm self-expression, something that really represented them well, but allowed them to get instant responses, have a really carbon neutral footprint. You know, maybe we've come to the day and age where we shouldn't fly pieces of paper around in order to invite people to Mm -hmm. events and believe that we could get there without sacrificing the look and feel. And today that makes a ton of sense. Back in 2008, designing live in the browser was not yet a concept that existed. Paperless was really on the forefront of the concept of being able to design something and watch it come to life as you were doing so. 
Adobe, everything else was a desktop environment where you had to download an application or, you know, put it in a CD-ROM. And those were so hard to use. You had to be a designer. And what we really wanted to bring to life was the idea that you, you had something in your mind. We could give you enough tools and enough guidance and templates that you could create something you were proud of and do, do so within Internet uh, Explorer 9 or whatever we were dealing with back then, <laughs> which was still pretty primitive browser technology as well. Yeah, super primitive. So how did he find you? So he decided to st- uh, start the company with his sister, Alexa Hirschfeld, who was a great friend of mine at Harvard. And so when they were batting around ideas uh, and I was working uh, in venture, we would just meet on the weekends, nights, weekends, and brainstorm and come up with ideas. And like all of the best partnerships in life, it really came about organically that I ended up joining the team because we knew that the match was there, that the chemistry was there. And I I would, you know, people come and ask me for advice on joining co-founding teams where there is a married couple or uh, siblings or cousins. And I was like, I can't give you advice. You've got to, you have to go find your own chemistry. It's not about whether or not they're siblings or whether or not they're married. It, it's got to be the right people. And I was so fortunate to find that. And then I think actually, because they were siblings, um, you know, the honesty, the raw honesty that you get in a sibling relationship sort of was extended to me and I was brought into the fold, meaning that we could have incredibly difficult conversations, heated debates, you know, without throwing around a lot of ultimatums and then be like, okay, so are we going to get pizza or Indian food? Um, (laughs) well, I work, I work with my husband or my husband's our chief operating officer. And so we've had, you know, we started hint 15 years ago and Mm -hmm. something I talk about on a lot of the podcasts that I do is that was the thing that we heard from so many potential investors early on was that we were a married couple and, you know, they didn't really invest in married couples. I now sort of have Mm -hmm. an opinion that that's not necessarily why they didn't invest, right? That it was a nice, easy thing for them. It was an an easy out, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. just this. And I tell this to entrepreneurs all the time that if they're, you know, oftentimes people just they just don't want the conflict, right? They don't want, mm-hmm. they want something that they know that you'll believe, but it's not necessarily exactly what the was root. going on. Yeah, yeah. The, right? The root of the thing. And mm-hmm. I remember my husband saying to me, you know, we were both, we had both come from tech. We had never had raised money before, but he's a Silicon Valley attorney. He had been in plenty mm-hmm. of rooms with with people. And uh, anyway, it was, it was fascinating. And we ended up mm-hmm. raising money in lots of different other ways. And being very successful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's and there's always ways to do it, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's just another wall. And I often talk about, you know, the doubts, as I mentioned earlier, you're always mm-hmm. going to, if you believe something, you'll attract people who will also say things, you know, that will make you doubt it even more, but you have to mm-hmm. figure out how to break the, through those things and get around it. So I love hearing, I love hearing that because I think it's so true that the conversations that go on around our company are very honest and we mm-hmm. don't hedge. And sometimes to the point. We, and yeah, sometimes yep. we seem like brother and sister. We're like, you know, we're not screaming mm-hmm. at each other, but we're saying, no, <laughs> you're wrong. You know, sorry. Yeah, so there's a psychological know. safety to be wrong versus. Yeah, like, and, and that's okay. I see where you're coming from, but. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're, you're still wrong, you know, yeah. and we, we still go on with it and we laugh and, and uh, everything. And, but I think, 
to your point, you guys all had different skill sets. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the most important thing is being able to really have different skill sets and and uh, really exciting. So you also attended that little school in Massachusetts the same time, I guess, mm-hmm. that Mark Zuckerberg was there. So did you yes. ever run into, were you part of the social network or he, he was my class. Um, though he left pretty quickly after this little thing called Facebook took off, Mm -hmm. but it was incredible to watch it from, you know, user zero really take off like wildfire on our campus and, uh, understand the implications. I remember I was walking to class, walking through the dorms with Uh, my roommate at the time. And she and I had just become roommates a few weeks earlier because it was October and everyone was wishing her happy birthday. And we were sophomores or we were juniors. And I just turned to her and I was like, I mean, I know it's your birthday, but literally how does everyone know it's your birthday? Mm -hmm. And she was like, Facebook. Other, wow. you know, everyone woke up that morning and there was not that much else on there. So they told you it was someone's birthday and they kind of told you who was on and that was it. And it was just sort of a uh, set of profiles of people. And that was sort of the only alert that you would get. And I was like, wow, that's, that's such a different experience to have a birthday now than last year. And I mean, that's sort of the understatement of the impact of uh, Facebook of the decade, but, uh, I think what happened in our class and the classes around us was that there was this halo effect of watching uh, him and a couple of other classmates go and start this. And my co-founder from Paperless has a joke that the rest of us were, you know, still figuring out the best class schedule configuration. And he was on to his uh, second hundred million. And all of us kind of looked up and we're like, oh, we should do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, it, sometimes it just takes us all like longer, right? To like go a, and figure it out. <laughs> I mean, but that's, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's such a crazy example, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty, pretty f- funny that you guys were there at the same time and that you mm-hmm. saw it taking off. I've really wondered actually if people really got it. Like I've met other people before who have been around people who were founders of companies and they didn't really know it was happening. Right, mm-hmm. they d- they didn't know that the service was happening or the product was actually happening, and it sounds like you did. It was definitely it became a conversation piece, and it was you know this was even among small numbers, but it was just a transformation of how you could follow and interact and communicate with people in the early days, and it and it was just clear that it was better than Friendster, and you couldn't quite put your finger on why, but it had that it it, it instantly was a zeitgeist on the campus. That's wild. I was at America Online until 2001. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was there when Instant Messenger was there. And it was the same kind Mm -hmm. of thing. It was no matter what else was going on, I was running e-commerce and shopping partnerships. And no matter what was going Mm -hmm. on, I mean, I knew that Instant Message was just going to be a huge thing. I mean, which ultimately ended up being texting, right? I mean, that's that's essentially- I was going to say, there are so many products today that are just aspiring to get back to AIM. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And it's so interesting, but I remember Mm -hmm. when you feel the wave, you know, coming in, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's hard to describe, but you're, you're like, oh yeah, that's really cool. And then you watch it and, and see that hockey stick. It's pretty exciting. So Mm -hmm. that's really cool though, that you were there. That's, 
That's super, super cool. So you left Paperless Post and you decided mm-hmm. to go back to investing. Mm-hmm. And so what was kind of your thinking there? Uh, as I was uh, transitioning from Paperless, I knew that I had this itch to build my next sort of venture. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have told you then what that meant because when I was an operator, uh, I was very heads down. Um, I wasn't sort of keeping lots of different pots boiling. I really, I was heads down at work and I might have been advising a few CEOs and founders outside, but mm-hmm. kept it pretty lean. And so it was like, I'm going to take six months off and really figure out where I want my next decade to take me. I've had such a an amazing decade. How do I top it? That was a little bit of a daunting feat uh, to think about that. And then also, you know, what do I really want out of it? And had the great fortune of sort of timing that exploration with my great friend and now business partner, Alexa Von Tobel, who was leaving Northwestern Mutual. And she and I uh, had been one another's sort of closest external colleague, closest confidant on this founder journey over the past decade. You know, the person that you call late at night when you really need to work through a problem and you need some external perspective on what you're dealing with. And we provided that for each other through the LearnVest and paperless journeys. And so I think I ended up in her office talking about this venture firm that she was thinking about bringing into reality weeks after um, my last day at paperless. And like all the best partnerships, it really started to snowball and become an organic conversation about how I would build it, what I would do, how would I prioritize and sort of built the foundation of becoming a partner and inspired really organically. I love it. She was a CEO, right? She wasn't an operations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So different skills that different skills, different perspectives. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And what and how big is your fund? So we have a $200 million early stage fund. So we focus on seed and series A. uh, And we have been around for about two years now. Um, I think we just had our second birthday two weeks ago. And which seems impossible, but here we are. And we invest about one to 3 million into seed companies and about five to 10 million into series A. That's awesome. I feel like so often when I've talked to different venture capitalists, they actually haven't had the operations experience that you've had. Do you feel that that is super useful? I mean, I would imagine that, especially with your portfolio and trying to figure out how people are building. To me, it is an, it's an incredibly important experience that I go back to all the time in thinking about this and is a really important influencing factor on why we chose the stage of investment that we did. Uh, not only do we think that it's the most interesting place to put our dollars, um, but we feel that our experience willing companies into existence, sort of transforming a category, really is well-suited to help entrepreneurs who are really early in their journey, really establishing product market fit and figuring out how both they're going to scale the company, how they're going to build the model that scales, but also how they're going to scale themselves and move from being in a building and doing mode, which you have to be in the early days into a leading and managing and vision setting mode exclusively. And and I think that there are great investors who sit at all parts of the capital stack, many that bring in different vantage points than I have. I would say there are probably Lots of people who are going to lead your Series C that have really important vantage points about growth capital and IPO markets that I'm not going to bring to the table and vice versa. I have really important experience on how you 
truly build an organization to build the company that you want to create. And I think that can go across any company building experience. It doesn't have to be sector focused. What would you tell one of your portfolio companies or somebody who's just going out and raising money for the first time, knowing you've been on both sides of the table? Mm -hmm. What do you think are the things that are really important? I think you as the operator, you as the founder have to fall in love with the idea or the problem that you're trying to solve. And that is crucial. And you have to remember that the investor is actually betting on you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think rightfully so founders get really, really invested in their ideas and the products that they want to build and the problems that they're going to solve. And they need to sell that to the investor, but they have to remember that at the end of the day, they're the bet. Mm-hmm. And that the greatest idea is only like its limitation is going to be the person that is setting out on this journey. And so I think founders really need to focus on how am I going to tell my story so that this investor understands why I'm the person to bet on to go solve this problem and that they really understand me, my strengths, my weaknesses, everyone, you know, nobody has intense strengths without weaknesses. So it is not about masking, you know, who you are. It is about actually amplifying it. So the investor really understands why you're going to achieve really superhuman feats, which is often what is required, particularly in the early days to get a venture off the ground, to hire people that are more talented than you deserve to be able to hire, to get your first customers to take a chance on you, to bring a product truly to life, to the quality that you have from your head actually into the real world, all of those things usually take more than just doing hard work. They take do, you know that extra and you need to really demonstrate to the investor base that you're going to bring that extra. And how do you pick the investor? I mean, how do you it ultimately, I guess, it, if you have a choice, um, which I think you always have a choice, but how I was do gonna you- I going to say, oh, at least keep it in your mind that you right. have a choice. Right. The other thing I would say is when you are raising money, know that this is your process to run. Mm-hmm. We as investors are participating in your process. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to look to us to how you want to run it. You you should really take the reins on it. And similarly, you should treat every conversation with an investor both like they're evaluating you and equal and opposite, you are evaluating them. Totally. Are how leaned in on you and the idea are there? Are they? How good are the questions they ask? And I think that's actually one of the greatest indicators is can they get to that next level of really asking questions that show that, yeah, they get the high level, but really they they understand on a deeper level what it's going to take to get this company done. Because you also want investors that understand and embrace the hard stuff you're going to have to do. Yeah, I think that that's so true. I, I think that the other thing, just to add on to what you're saying that I've noticed too, especially when I was going out initially, you get sort of you know, you hear these names, right? Somebody hears that you're going out and raising money. Sometimes they'll call you. Sometimes a friend will introduce you. And Mm -hmm. you really have to look at the companies that they've invested in. Mm -hmm. Because that's, I found, I never had a problem actually getting the meeting. Maybe some people have problems getting meetings. I never had problems getting the meetings. But Mm -hmm. that's one hour of your time or more mm-hmm. by the time you actually you know go there come back 2 hours right or maybe mm-hmm. more and i think that time is the most valuable thing that 
founders have. And, and yeah, that any of us have, but founders in particular, because, yeah. you know, you ti- you're raising money to buy yourself time. Totally. Yeah. So things like stages, for example, like what you were talking about are things that the, the newbie person going out and looking for money, you didn't, you don't really know what stage it is and mm-hmm. how important that is. So if somebody somebody still wants to take the meeting with you, you're a brand new company and they do later stage, probably not worth your time. If you have, yeah. you know, limited time. Do you agree? I and I think that um just to add on to what you're saying, if you can find someone who's inside the venture or invest in whatever mm-hmm. investment community you're going to speak to, where you can say, can you just take down the curtain for me and kind of tell me what the market looks like right now. Tell me, um, you know, kind of what's happening in terms of what does a seed mean today? What does a series A mean today? Who's doing them? What are they looking like? Um, Because one of the things, you know, that's the, the landscape is shifting all the time. So even if you knew venture three years ago, to your example, there are late stage funds that are now doing seed rounds. Mm -hmm. So optically, it might not look like it makes sense to meet with a later stage fund, but given recent trends, it actually would. And so I think if you can find that sort of like insider who you say, I'm not trying to raise from you, I just want a half an hour to get you to sort of give me the inside baseball on what you're seeing and what should I call this round? What is, if I say that I'm raising a... $2 million series A, what does that signal to the market? And a lot of times they can kind of say like, okay, this is how people are going to think about you. This is where they're going to bucket you. Don't say you're raising a $2 million series A. That was a joke and not a good example. <laughs> um, and so I think that uh, that can be really helpful from the founder seat. And I think that's one of the things we try and arm our portfolio members with is uh, a little bit of the mindset that everyone's going to come into their meetings with. That's great advice. Because we know from being in a founder seat and the operator seat that sometimes it's kind of a mystery why certain firms react in with, you know, unbounded enthusiasm and someone else doesn't. And then you find out in retrospect that you could have predicted those outcomes. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. What are some of the current consumer facing trends that you're focusing on right now? I have been looking a lot at uh, consumer tech that is really driven at personal productivity or um, sort of personal time management uh, that has that benefits a lot from social dynamics. So we have an investment in um, a company called Saturn, which is a calendar app for high schoolers. So managing those block floating schedules that just makes life easier, but also introduces sort of collaborative task management. How do you keep track of all your homework with your classmates? Where's your friend? Oh, they're in building B while I'm in building A. So has a social dynamic and is sort of like the first productivity app for a 14-year-old to manage the work that they're doing outside of just notes app on their phone. And then another, which is really geared, which is going to launch later this spring, which is geared towards parents and organizing and sharing the load of managing the household and how you sort of unearth all the work that is being done, both to make it more manageable, but also to be able to, you know, more easily answer that age old question. How can I help? You seem busy. (laughs) Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> How old, and you have two kids, right? I do. I so, have a three-year-old and a seven-month-old. Oh, wow. That's that's awesome. My I have four that are significantly older. Um, so I have three in college and one in high school. So I'm so you managed your... through all of this already flawlessly. Yeah, I started Hint <laughs> when I had four kids under the age of six, and so it, it yeah. So, so you had five kids under the age of six. Yeah, I was not the profile <laughs> that most people wanted to invest in, and uh, it, the best thing is is honestly when I run into those people who. Uh, didn't really think I could do it, frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, now they look at it and they say they were wrong. I mean, it's just, you, you know, and I'm Good. like, that's okay. At least you owned it. You know? Yeah. I was, gonna say, <laughs> I was like, well, good for them because they're, the equal, they're also a group of people who, you know, have wonderful, wonderfully terrible memories who are like, oh, I always knew you were going to do it. And you're yeah. like, no, you, you literally no, you didn't. didn't. I remember that meeting and <laughs> yeah. it really was not the meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, and now it's hard for me to say this on the invest. So now that I sit on the investor side of the table, but uh, we did always come out of every fundraise uh, with one person's face on the dartboard. We said, we were like, it's just important that yeah. they've given us a gift. They're the person that we're going to prove wrong in the next chapter. Um, and, you know, we never failed to happen too. <laughs> Well, I always feel like too, and I mean, this sort of stretches to so many other examples as well, but I always feel that generally when you're getting feedback in some of these meetings, I mean, on the one hand, I say some of these meetings aren't really worth your time, but actually mm-hmm. there's a lot of meetings where you may disagree with 90% and you, whatever, you just don't think it's really a great thing. But I always feel mm-hmm. like even the challenging ones where I want to have somebody on the dark board or I find I'm having somebody on the dartboard, there might have been something that somebody says in there that is a little bit true. I'm always the one that's trying to pull that stuff out and learn from it, right? And get Mm -hmm. better. And that's what I did in all of those meetings. And so, Mm -hmm. and then later on, and when I would run into them, I'd say, no, I I actually remember you saying this. And they say, how do you remember that? And I said, you know, founders, when we're raising money, we actually remember Remember everything. No. <laughs> and actually, I think the fundraising process, and I don't just say this as an investor, I did say this as an operator, is a really special time for reflection, zooming out, getting out of the weeds. And each process can bring you sort of to a new level of understanding, both through the feedback that you get, but also through just being in this exercise of constantly explaining the vision in a way that when you're sitting with your employees and you're all bought in and you're all just you know, fighting another yeah. day, you don't sort of get that time and space to necessarily yeah. have those high-level conversations every day. And you're not going to have everybody telling you that your baby's pretty along the way, yeah. especially the more <laughs> serious ones. But I always say to founders, like the, the key thing is to brush yourself off. Right mm-hmm. and keep moving and whatever. Know that there's other people that are going to love you and you know. But it's really it's a lot. Mm-hmm. I, some people ask me how if I how to know if they're ready to start a company, and I I say to them, well, do you really want everyone to think that this is a fabulous idea, and do you want everyone to be really proud of you? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, then you're not ready. You need yeah. to be ready for everyone to tell you it's a terrible idea and to tell you that your baby is like a little wonky and you need to live, you need to just not care, listen to it and be able to take in that information. Like you said, Impressive. and it sounds like you're good at find the kernels of truth, use them to, to make it better. Um, but have that sort of internal locus of motivation, confidence, 
and it needs to be there. Otherwise it's, I mean, it's already a hard road as you know. (laughs) Yeah. And it, I think it's just a, it's something that you just have to, it's a learning experience and you have to immerse Mm -hmm. yourself into it. And, you know, I think that the best learnings come where you feel a little bit uncomfortable right? Mm -hmm. And just in general, and that's what fundraising is. And I mean, frankly, I've done it for 15 years. I'm the first Mm -hmm. person to tell people that, including investors, that I don't like raising money. That's just not what I enjoy doing at all, but I've gotten really good at it. And I, you know, and I continue to just go and do it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's necessary. And you don't- It's necessary. It's okay if you don't enjoy raising money. You have to enjoy running the company. Yeah, exactly. And you have to know that you're going to go out and raise the capital. And that's exactly what I do and where my head has been at for for a long time. Mm -hmm. But uh, So COVID, (laughs) obviously, for everybody, I mean, going on a year, which is so crazy, right? And uh, as we're rounding, starting to get close to these anniversaries. Right. It's it's nuts. I mean, I remember very clearly, I was closing down my New York office and I flew out from San Francisco on March 11th and shut Mm -hmm. down before the um, you know, really while everybody was shutting down, I'll, I'll never forget that week on a lot mm-hmm. of levels. And we hadn't closed San Francisco yet because it really was a lot worse in New York than it was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And of course, we found that out later. And then coming back that next week into San Francisco and really kind of feeling the effects of, of you know, offices closing down. 15% of our business went away. Luckily, mm-hmm. we had sort of other revenue streams coming into the company, and which ultimately ended up growing our company significantly. But it was, uh, what What did you see? And what, what do you think are the big shifts uh, that you saw just in, in companies? I think a lot of companies that were, that we were looking at, um, that were pursuing a model where they believed that there was still an importance in brick and mortar or some in-person experience and that they would have a digital sort of arm to it Mm -hmm. or a software play very quickly, you know, quadrupled down into the software element in a way that maybe it would have taken five years um, to really embrace it and really say, this is a number one priority, such as our, uh, we have an investment in a company called Chief that is all around. It's like a YPO model yeah. for yeah, 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 senior women. That's great. And they had in-person uh, meetings for their cohorts. And obviously they had to shift. And I think in so many ways that uh, is going to be a, a long-term transformation of a lot of business models um, towards really deeply embracing uh, software as the delivery mechanism um, and and flipping any brick and mortar or physical into you know a nice to have or or a different role that it plays it will not eliminate it forever but it really accelerated the focus uh, onto that and so I think that that's been good and, it, and that might have also like bolstered the confidence of some of those CEOs that you know we can build a really good software product here and pe- and our customers are ready for it yeah, it's interesting. I I think there's still a link missing for a lot of these people though that were as as you kind of described that they were thinking about it as an add-on to their existing business. And I think that the the piece that so many of these people are missing is that while it's just as important and maybe during a pandemic it, you know, mm-hmm. sort of makes up for things, I think that the data side, there's so many people that just don't really know what that is and sort of why mm-hmm. it's important. They're just 
allowing others to kind of take their data. And I mean, so many people just, at least in my industry, think that going online is just working with Amazon, right? And they think they've solved it and it's all And it's just a logistical problem, not a... Right. They just Mm -hmm. don't really understand it and especially the physical good side of it. And Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll be interesting. I think there's still growth to be had there and maybe Mm -hmm. there's some new companies. I keep looking at what are those new companies that will crop up out of that because I think that there's just definitely this whole operation side of things that I think so many of them don't get. And it's not Mm -hmm. just about throwing a lot of ad dollars at Facebook or Google. Yes, you need to probably do that too. But yeah, that's one that's a very like shallow first step. Right. And how Mm -hmm. can you just get better at ultimately understanding what what I keep saying over and over again, my biggest learnings from 2020 is that the customer is really in control Mm -hmm. more and more about how they shop, what services they buy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think it's, it's so, so crystal clear. So it's really super interesting. So best piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs and founders? This is advice for the the day-to-day or the year-to-year, but run towards the hardest thing first. So I think uh, as people, we have sort of a psychological habit of, you know, ticking off the stuff we know we can do. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of, I, I think in the entrepreneur seat, in the founder seat, you have to go towards the problem that you're not really sure how you're going to solve mm-hmm. um, and go solve that part of the customer experience. And and similarly, you know, the part of being a founder is as soon as you know, someone else on your team can do it, it's got to be off your plate, no matter mm-hmm. how good you are at it, it's got to be delegated. And so I think you said it earlier, you know, the place you learn the most is outside your comfort zone. And so founders learn to live exclusively outside your comfort zone, outside of your skill zone, and outside of your company's comfort zone at all times, because those are usually the most important things to be doing. I think that's so true. And I I think that you touched on another thing that I always tell founders and CEOs that I think is really critical, though, is understanding a little bit about everything. Because mm-hmm. if a person in your company leaves or, you know, there's a problem that they are mm-hmm. having a really challenging time fixing, if you can actually get in there and try and figure out, even if it's not your lane, you can come in and Go in and value. support and be yeah, helpful. And, and I think that's also very crucial for hiring as well, where you are going to hire the better talent, be able to evaluate it more, the more you expose yourself to every part of the business. I think that's so critical. I I totally, Mm -hmm. totally agree. Well, this is amazing advice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love love hearing just that you went from one industry and finance into Mm -hmm. a company and then went back to finance. Do you think you'll ever go in-house at a company again? I think I'm pretty heads down for the next couple of decades, but never say never. And I also love building companies. So I I would never cross it off the list. Well, you're in a great position too, because especially in that early stage, they, you know, these companies need help Mm -hmm. and support. So it's fun. I know I'm I'm in the privileged position where I get to work with a bunch of founding teams all the time and get those high highs and those low lows and they come fast and furious both at the same time often. That's super true. So, well, great. Well, thank you so much, Lucy, for coming on and everybody mm-hmm. give Lucy five stars and mm-hmm. and definitely come back and see us on Mondays and Wednesdays every week. We're 
meeting with lots of amazing people uh, with great insights and and different interesting journeys at, that some are uh, actually none are really a straight line. I feel like the most interesting people that we have are sort of bouncing around and doing things not exactly the way that everybody does it, which is really, really interesting. So to those who can career plan that well, I, I give you kudos. <laughs> I love it. And where do people find you too? You can find me at Lucy at inspiredcapital.com into my inbox, or actually my Twitter handle is confusing because it is my maiden name, Lucy Grayson at Lucy G-R-A-Y-S-O-N. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And we'll see you all very soon. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.